0: Welcome to our latest Beyond Brexit podcast. I'm Emily Kahn. One of the areas I'm most often asked about by our clients is the impact of Brexit on the UK economy. So to help me dive into this today, I'm joined by Mike Jateman, senior economist at PwC who works on our UK economic outlook, and Barrett Capellian, a senior economist within the firm who's been working on economic impact analysis for our own contingency planning for Brexit, as well as for our clients. So Mike, our most recent UK economic outlook was released in November and focused extensively on the different Brexit scenarios. Talk us through what the analysis tells us for 2019.
1: Sure. Hi, Emily. Hi. So all of our projections, uh, our main scenario assumes a reasonably smooth Brexit. Um, by this, we mean that a deal is agreed with the EU that allows the UK to leave the union and that there's some early progress in negotiations on the future trading relationship. Right, OK. Uh, this would be sort of analogous to a parliamentary approval of the withdrawal agreement that Theresa May struck in November or something similar. Okay. If we get a softer Brexit, which involves keeping the UK in a customs union permanently, or a harder one, uh, we'd, we'd revise these numbers. But on the assumption of this reasonably smooth Brexit I mentioned, um, we think that growth uh, in 2019 in the UK is going to pick up a bit, from about 1.3% in 2018 to 1.6% next year. That is all about the return of business business investment to growth. Right. Okay. So we've had three quarters uh, of contraction in business investment so far in 2018. Firms are crying out for a bit more certainty about what mm-hmm. the, their yeah, future conditions are likely to be in the future. Um, we think the government is going to spend slightly more next year. That we've got a preview of that in the 2018 budget. But consumer spending is going to slow. Um, We've got slightly higher interest rates, uh, quite high debt levels. And it's been consumer spending that's powered the economy in 2018. And we think that it's, it's probably unlikely to expect the same level of growth in 2019. So if you net all that out, you get a slightly stronger economy next year. But that's really dependent on an improved uh, business investment picture, which again determine is, is dependent on exactly what kind of Brexit we get.
0: That makes sense. And you, you mentioned there at the beginning that you'd revise those numbers a little bit. Um, if it was slightly softer or slightly harder. And clearly those scenarios are a bit, little bit less known. Roughly, how would those numbers move?
1: So we've, we've got uh, a low growth scenario for 2019, which is essentially flat growth. Uh, and the sorts of assumptions that go into that would be a no deal Brexit, right? Um, perhaps an intensification of the, the trade war between the US and China, uh, general cooling of the global economy, but primarily that's that's Brexit related. The high growth scenario, which would take growth up to sort of two and a half percent or slightly stronger, would require another uh, boost to the global economy, a cessation of trade hostilities, uh, and a very smooth Brexit.
0: Right. That makes a lot of sense. And really interesting that actually there's other factors at play there. And that's important to remember that whilst Brexit feels like very much the dominant force here in the UK at the moment, there are other things in the world going on that have a bearing on our economy too.
1: Absolutely. But yeah, the, the politics is such that it's, it, it becomes a bit all encompassing. Mm. But there is, there is more for businesses than, than just Brexit.
0: So looking beyond 2019, because uh, the economic outlook does, does look a bit further than that, what about the, the 2020s? What, what might they bring?
1: Yeah, and, and here, Brexit is a less important factor because we're looking so much further out. Um, but again, we have to assume this reasonably smooth Brexit is one of our, our main assumptions. Uh, and here, if we look out for the 2020s as a whole, we're expecting growth of between one5 and 2%. Um, there are sort of three key drivers of economic growth. Uh, there's the size of the labor force, so yeah. how many people are contributing to the economy, the flexibility and the efficiency of the labor market, so how, uh, how well can people get the work that they want, and productivity. So if we think about those in turn, with the size of the labour force, we've kind of picked some of the low-hanging fruit already. We've got uh, much more women, um, a much higher proportion of women into the workforce than we have mm-hmm. previously. Um, the next frontier, I think, is to keep older workers in the workforce for longer, particularly as, li- as life expectancy, expectancy continues to rise. You can actually get some, some good output from older workers who are leaving the, the workforce in their 50s and 60s. At right. the moment. Yeah. Um, on the second point, and about flexibility, the UK economy has benefited from having the increased flexibility of having EU nationals working in the Absolutely. UK very easily in sectors like retail and healthcare. Um, obviously, this is going to become more difficult post-Brexit. Uh, and we've already seen a sort of fairly steep decline in the number of EU nationals coming to the UK since the referendum. Uh, and on the third point on, on productivity, um, the UK and other advanced economies in the G7 have all seen productivity growth slow over the last two decades. This is one of the biggest sort of puzzles in contemporary economics. And uh, there are lots of competing theories as to why. My sort of particular suspicion is that because of globalisation and the financial crisis, we've had uh, a decade and a half or so of really abundant, quite cheap labour and that's persuaded firms Mm. to hire people rather than build and invest in robots and machines, which may be more efficient. But it's just been easier to to find people to do outsourcing or people on your own doorstep. And as in the next few years, we think these labour markets are going to tighten, we've got very low unemployment now in the UK. Labour's going to become more expensive, and we might see firms going to invest in more efficient machines, which may help to drive up productivity growth a bit. Again, if you take all of that in sum, we've got this growth of between one5 and 2% a year over the next 10 years, which is a little better than we've seen in recent years. But it's, it's a way off the growth of between 2 and 3% that we saw in the 60s, yeah. 70s, 80s, and 90s.
0: Okay, thank you for that. I'm really interested in the point that you make there around um, investing in in machines and certainly we're starting to see clients dusting off business cases that maybe didn't make sense five years ago in Brexit terms now making a bit more sense today. So interesting to hear you reinforcing that point. And um, just a note to listeners, you can find our UK Economic Outlook reports and subscribe for updates on our Beyond Brexit website pwc.co.uk forward slash Brexit. Barrett, I'd like to, to draw you in a bit more. I know you and I have been working together on um, PwC's own Brexit planning, and you're working with a number of clients in this space. Let's talk a little bit um, about different sectors. So Mike's painted a really good general picture there. Which which sectors are going to be most impacted by those different economic scenarios?
2: Uh, hi, Emily. Um, I think it's worth saying that it's difficult to answer that question with certainty because you know there's quite a few layers you need to consider to answer that question. So if you do a bottom-up analysis of each of the sectors, you have to consider the trading linkages of those sectors, the supply chain, the e-regulations that pertain to that sector. But a simpler way to think about it is from a top-down perspective and in terms of factors of production, which, which Mike actually alluded to. So uh, if you think of what drives the productive capacity of, of a business, there's three main elements. Productivity, capital, stuff like computers, labor, buildings, uh, and also uh, your workers as well. So focusing on that latter element, labour, we've got relatively good data from the ONS which, which shows the reliance of different sectors of the UK economy uh, on, on labour from the European Union. Right. And actually the top three sectors in the UK that are reliant on EU, EU labour in descending order are the manufacturing sector, the distribution hotels and restaurant sector and, and the construction centre. And if I can just make a couple of uh, quick points on the first two sectors. So in manufacturing, that about 10% of the labor force employed in manufacturing is, is from the EU. Now in absolute terms, that's 300,000 people. Um, and the manufacturing sector has been particularly vocal about uh, Brexit and the ramifications it has on its sector. Partly because of the reliance on, on EU staff, but also because they are quite reliant on, on the EU market as a significant source of demand for the products they produce. Yeah. So more than half of total manufactured exports uh, by value uh, you know, that, that were produced in the UK goes to the EU. And I think it's also worth saying one more point about manufacturing here, um, which is this. When, when I have conversations with clients, the impression most clients have about the manufacturing sector in the UK is akin to you know, the image of a dirty old polluting factory that's not very efficient. Yes. But actually, that's, that's far from the truth for British manufacturing nowadays, because that nowadays they seem to be much more high tech and productive than they were in the past. So more than one third of UK manufacturing is either in the car sector or in complicated machinery like you know, airplane turbines and in chemical goods. Uh, and these are, you know, very competitive and complex industries which require very specialized and high value-adding skills, some of which are in low supply in the UK, and that's where the EU sort of stuff comes into play. Um, so that, that, that's why it's quite important for the manufacturing sector. And then the second point is the distribution hotels and restaurants uh, sector, which employs about a quarter of a million people from the EU. Now, this sector is particularly worried about Brexit simply because the UK is now experiencing record low unemployment rates, which basically means they have to look for labour elsewhere to grow their businesses. Yeah. And, you know, if restrictions are put on that channel potentially, then that could impact, you know, uh, the scale at which they expand their businesses. And let me just say one more final thing, which which was actually surprising when I, when I looked at the data coming out uh, from the ONS, which is... The, about the banking and financial sector which, in absolute terms, absorbs the most EU migrants. So about almost half a million Europeans are employed in this sector. And anecdotally this can be sort of seen as you as you walk down Liverpool Street, where you, you hear sort of different um, mix of languages. And as an economics team, we've done some work in this sector as well, to understand the different forms, uh, the impact of different forms of Brexit, On the FS sector, which which our listeners can find on the on the PwC website as well.
0: Right, you reminded me actually of one of the most frequently asked questions I get is around what's the impact going to be on jobs. Mike, I know you and I were discussing this the other day. Share share with the listeners your answer to that question. How's Brexit going to impact jobs?
1: I think the reason that it's a uh, a very familiar question is because it's very difficult to answer, um, given. Uh, the number of uh, potential outcomes still on the table for Brexit, giving precise sort of net job gains or losses is, is very difficult. What we can do is, is sort of flesh out some of the context through which this disruption to the labour market is going to occur. Um, Barrett mentioned uh, the unemployment rate in the UK yeah. is now currently the lowest since the mid 1970s, by which you know, at that point the economy looked very different to how it is mm-hmm. now. Um, the employment rate as a proportion of the labour force is at a record high, Job creation is still pretty rapid in terms of the number of new jobs being created by the economy each month, Um, and wage growth is starting to accelerate as well. So all of these things together, I think, suggest that unemployment, which is 4.1% at the moment, could go a little bit further down um, to 3 point something, but after that, the market's gonna look sort of quite seriously tight. Um, Were a considerable number of EU nationals to leave, and they weren't replaced by economic migrants from the rest of the world, um, employers would struggle to find workers, Barrett mentioned you know a couple of sectors that we think would be particularly affected by that and they may be forced to either increase wages or and, and increase the risk of, of higher inflation as a result. Alternatively we may get a less smooth Brexit than we hope and are currently projecting mm. uh, where we could see an economic downturn that results in firms laying off workers and unemployment rising. So most likely we'll see different groups of workers within the labour market behaving in different ways in response to exactly the precise kind of Brexit we get, um, depending also on the sector they're in and their particular nationality and access to the market. So I guess the best answer is to say that the disruption is coming. The the precise shape of that is going to be very different for different kinds of worker in different places. Um, And the scale of that disruption depends almost entirely on the precise sort of Brexit that we get.
0: Okay, thank you, Mike. Um, I'd like to go into another kind of specific area that I get a lot of questions about. And Barrett, I know you and I have been looking at this closely together, which is around investor sentiment. So maybe you could just talk through that work and what we've concluded about what may happen to investor sentiment as we move through yeah, 2019.
2: I mean, what, what we did as part of sort of our internal workings is, is to look at how uncertainty and slower UK economic growth or GDP growth affect investment levels um, in the UK economy. Uh, just to contextualize some of the numbers, uh, real investment Uh, growth in the UK economy grew by an average of one and a half percent in the two years after the referendum compared to an average rate of three and a half percent in the six years preceding the referendum. So what we did is we built this model, economic econometric model, which linked uh, investment growth rates in the UK economy with economic activity rates and uncertainty levels. And we found that statistically both of these drivers were significant in, in explaining investment growth rates. So a couple of the key conclusions uh, we, we came down to was, well, the first one was we, we sort of deduced the impact of the, of the result of the referendum on investment levels in the, in the UK economy. To do this, we compared the actual investment levels uh, that were experienced in the UK economy after the referendum with estimates of what investment levels would have been had the UK economy grown at its sort of long-term growth rate and had uncertainty levels sort of remained broadly constant. And what we found was that the cumulative uh, investment post the referendum was about three and a half percent lower than what it would have been uh, in the absence of Brexit. And then what we also did is we sort of projected forward the investment growth rates based on a spectrum of different Brexit scenarios. And the key conclusion we came down to was that a, a deal which led to a High alignment of rules, regulations, product standards with that of the EU was associated with, with much faster investment growth compared to uh, sort of a sort of stagnant investment growth climate in a sort of no deal situation. Um, and I suppose this, this piece of work is a great example of, of how we generally uh, help our clients by bringing in or bridging that gap between the, the big macro picture and, and the more business implication side of things.
0: That's interesting, actually. And that was one of the things that I wanted to ask you both about today, because this is absolutely fascinating. There's, there's no getting away from that. But what what kind of business do with this type of analysis? So as well as being interested and intrigued, what kind of decisions do businesses that you're working with make armed with the type of analysis that you're talking about?
2: So I can give you a couple of examples of types of works that we've done and how clients have responded. Great, thank you. Um, so the one area that we do quite a lot of work is uh, developing scenarios, different scenarios about the future state of the world that may involve Brexit or it may involve other sort of uh, situations. And revenue or cost forecasting based on those scenarios is what's really popular with our clients. So what we do is build models that link the uh, sort of the economic climate to the business climate and then we project those forward and, and give an indication to our clients of how their revenues or costs might develop in the future. Now we found that clients use that to sort of adjust their corporate uh, strategy or their operational readiness about these different scenarios or they adjust some, some of their supply chain uh, arrangements that they have to reflect these different states of the world that might occur in the future. Okay, okay. So that's one area that we do quite a lot of work with on, on a sort of business level. The other one that, we, we, that that tends to be quite popular with our, with our clients is, is this sort of impact assessment area, where we measure um, the change of a, of a big policy change or of a, of a structural change, such as Brexit, mm-hmm. on the sector as a whole. Uh, and that sort of gives some sort of indication to particularly trade associations, for example, for them to understand better on the ramifications of that policy change on their sector. And they then feed that to their members, and then their members sort of take action according to, to, the, to the conclusions of those type okay. of analyses.
0: Mike, anything you'd add to that?
2: I think we serve a
1: purpose as a kind of filtering service as well, because there's there are so many, uh, I mean, we, we've obviously been talking about Brexit today, lots of Brexit impact assessments, a lot of a constant stream of economic data that's, mm. that's coming out. And, and the role we play for lots of uh, clients is taking all of that information in doing the modelling that we do uh, looking at the conclusions and then trying to put that into uh, sometimes numbers sometimes scenarios you know this is what it means for your business.
0: Okay. So filtering out the noise in essence. Yes. Great. Thank you both. It's been really interesting for me. I've certainly learned a lot today. Now, regular listeners will know I like to finish with a bit of myth busting. So what are some common economics myths that you hear a lot in the Brexit debate? Mike, perhaps you'd like to go first.
1: Uh, I think there's one about slow growth versus recessions.
0: Right, OK. Um, this is
1: a very common economicsy trap to fall into. So we've seen lots of Brexit impact studies that say the economy will be lower in the long term than if we'd voted to remain, including those done by PwC. Um, so they often conclude by saying something like, the economy will be 5% smaller in 10 years. This doesn't mean the economy is shrinking by 5% uh, or, or a recession that lasts 10 years. It just means the economy will be growing at a slower pace over time. Um, And it means that by the end of the horizon, it's 5% smaller than it would have been um, under the the previous scenario. Okay. There may be a recession in there, there may not, Um, but this is the difference between slower growth and an economy actually shrinking, which is what you get in a recession.
0: Okay. And I definitely hear that a lot. So thanks for busting that one today. Barrett, how about you?
2: So I think, uh, I mean, I want to reiterate Mike's point there, Um, and the key point for me is that all of these uh, impact assessments are basically comparative exercises. They compare different states of the world amongst themselves. They're not forecasting exercises. So I think for me, the moral of the story is, is maybe to go beyond the headlines of, of some of these stories that are written. And I'd like to think that us economists are relatively good at making projections about the future state of the world, subject to assumptions that are clear and transparent. But we never claimed, and I don't think we will ever claim, that we can forecast the future with, with absolute certainty. Okay.
0: And I think it's fair to say, you know, you talked about the headlines there. Often those pick up on, on the worst case, don't they? So kind of get behind those headlines into the detail behind it, and you'll see a rich picture of different scenarios exactly. um, to understand. And okay. there are scenarios and not
2: forecasts.
0: Okay. So that's all we have time for today. I hope you've all found this economics special edition as interesting and useful as I have. If so, why not subscribe to our economics and business podcast? And remember to visit pwc.co.uk forward slash Brexit for our most up-to-date insights and get in touch with any questions you might have. Bye for now.